Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I'm reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about loving the church, but in the end, leaving it. In this episode, the family embarks on a great adventure. Leaving the suburbs of southwestern Ontario, we relocated at the farthest edge of the Western world in Tofino and Euclid on Vancouver Island. If I wanted to break from the crushing busyness of my ministry, I'd come to the right place. If I wanted room to breathe and begin exploring all those things I told my counselor I wanted to do, this was the right time. I read from Chapter 10, Part 1. And it's just like way back in the days of old And together we will grow As we sail into the mistake Come on, come on The Quakers have a saying for how we discern our path in life. Way opens, they say, or way closes. It sounds so simple, so elegant, They don't, to my knowledge, have a saying, way opens and then kicks you in the ass on your way through. Our decision to move to the coast began with rejection. I had applied for a parish on Vancouver Island. They flew Sandy and me out, putting us up in a nice hotel. The parish was socially active and situated in a growing community. They had plans for the expansion of their ministry through renovations to their buildings— It sounded exciting, but no spark was lit in either direction. The bishop, Barry Jenks, provided consolation afterward by listing various other openings he knew were coming up. Among them was the West Coast Mission, also known as the Long Beach Pastoral Charge. It was a shared ministry of the Anglican and United Churches, straddling the Pacific Rim National Park, up island, as they say. It embraced the coastal towns of Euclid, a fishing and logging town, and Tofino, a mecca for environmental tourism. It didn't fit any of our criteria for a new parish. It wasn't big enough to represent an administrative challenge. It was remote rather than urban, and it overshot Calgary by about a thousand kilometers. It stood alone among the opportunities we had been considering, as if in a file of its own labeled Other Possibilities. Yet, it beckoned. Sandy and I had been enjoying a new television series that spoke to some deep longing in both of us. Northern Exposure was set in the fictional town of Sicily, Alaska. It reminded me of Cookstown, which I felt I had left too soon, and also of North Vancouver, which I wished... I'd never left at all. The people in the show were eccentric. The magnificent scenery acted as one of the characters, and it reveled 
in the many quirky joys of small-town life. Euclulet and Tofino fit that beguiling profile, if not the one we had actually drawn up in our heads. I couldn't get it out of my mind. So I wrote to Bishop Jenks. He welcomed my interest and set up a telephone interview with the search committee from Long Beach. The interview went well, nine people at their end sitting around a speakerphone, and me at mine, the phone glued to my head. I think I talked to their ears off. When we were done with all the prepared questions, they asked why I would want to go from a large suburban ministry to their small towns. I said, I'd like to be in a place where I don't have to go through six traffic lights to drive the half mile to work every day. They laughed. They had no traffic lights there at all. The first snag presented itself the week after I announced my departure from St. Simon's and after we'd already put our house on the market. I had discovered that my first responsibility upon arriving at the coast would be a United Church wedding in Euclid. I felt sure I could figure things out, but just to be sure, I put out a call for help on Ecunet, a church-related online community of the day. Naive about the reach of social media, I wrote to my online friends in dramatic hyperbole, thinking it a humorous way to ask for their help. In my interview, I told them, I had expressed familiarity with United Church forms of worship. This was almost true when it came to Sunday worship. I went on, but it would be a bald-faced lie to apply it to weddings, I said. My message found its way to a member of the Ministry and Personnel Committee of the United Church Presbytery on the island, the committee that had approved my appointment. They read it as a literal admission of having misled them, showing contempt both for the process and for the United Church of Canada. Whoever they were, an anonymous enemy is always a far greater threat than a known one. They demanded the retraction of my appointment. I received the word from Bishop Jenks himself. He was, shall we say, frosty on the phone. This was bad news for everyone, embarrassing for him and devastating for us. I asked what I could do to make things right. He would inquire. He got back to me with a solution, a telephone interview with a subcommittee of presbytery to clear things up. I expressed to my interrogators my regret for my sense of humor, and reiterated that I was only seeking help to perform my first task in my new ministry as well as I could. They seemed relieved and recommended that the appointment stand. But even before we hit the road, it was rising to trip us up. The house wasn't selling. As the date of our departure approached, we faced the prospect not only of failing to realize any material benefit from its sale, but worse, of dragging our mortgage payments with us all the way to the coast, where I would be on minimum stipend, and where Sandy had only the possibility of work, not an actual job. In the end, at the eleventh hour, we sold the place, but for a loss, and had to drive away before the movers came. We left all the details to my new church secretary at St. Simon's, Pat, to whom I will be forever in debt. It was a mess. One neighbor overwatered our lawn, causing flooding. Another tried to steal some of the items we had stored in the garage. 
The movers took things that were supposed to stay with the house and left others that were supposed to go. But a deeper problem began stirring almost as soon as I said yes to the search committee. Sandy and I had discussed every possibility that had presented itself over the previous few months. I thought we were in sync on the decision to make this move. What I hadn't heard or properly understood was that being open to a particular move was not the same as agreeing to it. In Sandy's view, this was my decision, not hers. My grandmother had once told her, Brian always gets what he wants. I don't know why she would have said a thing like that. It provided Sandy with a ready-made mantra whenever we ended up doing something I wanted to do. This move to her was the fulfillment of that prophecy. On our way west in Calgary, our car broke down. We had to leave it behind, leasing a new one on the fly. As the wheels fell off our relocation plans, I came to realize that I would be the one bearing full responsibility for this move, alone. It was my ass that was being kicked pretty much the entire way from Oakville to Euclid. Pray God this was not a mistake, I pleaded, as finally we drove into our new town. We rolled into Euclid in the dead calm of a midnight mist. The town revealed itself to us in still-life vignettes, each lit by an overhead street lamp. Our heads turned in slow motion as each scene drifted silently by until the night swallowed it up again. A gas station. A wooded lot. A boarded-up storefront. We took in each one as an unfolding revelation for what it might tell us about our new home. We found the B&B we'd booked in advance and bedded down for the night without our bearings. In the morning, we would meet the moving truck at the rectory and our new life would begin. The next day, everything looked completely different. The mist had cleared, the clouds lifted, the sun glinted off the drops of dew clinging to the grass, and we saw our coastal town in all its rugged splendor. 120 inches of rain each year has a way of washing the paint right off wooden buildings, but that only made them recede sympathetically into the lush extravagance of the surrounding foliage, like totems tilting halfway between their birth and their return to the earth. The harbor spread out before us, with the draggers and the saners tied up at the government docks, I would return to this spot often, seeking refuge and inspiration. Once, on a windy day, as I stood gazing out across the harbor, my collar turned up against the cold and my hands thrust deep into the pockets of my jacket, I heard a rustling overhead. I looked up. Two bald eagles were riding the southeasterlies mere meters above me, just out of reach. I could hear the wind in their wing feathers. Then something barked from the dark water at my feet. I looked down. Two sea lions were making their way to one of the draggers for whatever the fishers would be throwing away. I stood transfixed between sea and sky, my heart about to burst. 
But for now, I wanted to cast my eyes on the open ocean. We got into the car and drove out to the edge of town, to Amphitrite Point, where a stolid lighthouse stood watch over a rocky headland. The ocean was calm that day, and we clambered over the slippery rocks out to a promontory where nothing remained between us and Japan, some 7,000 kilometers to the west, across the North Pacific. The kids had been overwhelmed by the thought of this move. Back in Oakville, Sandy and I had gathered them in the living room to tell them. Heather was twelve and stoical, swallowing her own feelings while keeping watch over the reactions of her younger brothers. At ten, Robbie looked away to hide his tears at the thought of leaving his friends. Ben, eight years old, wondered if this meant we could get a dog. Well, yes, maybe we could get a dog. They all brightened up at the thought. A dog! That seemed to make everything all right, at least for the moment. As we assembled on the headland, now that they could see this for themselves, I hoped they might grasp some of the reason for my own excitement, for why we had come here in the first place. Sandy held Heather back, as Robbie and Ben and I sat with our legs dangling high above the gentle surges of the ocean below. Sandy called to us to move back, but I reassured her that we were fine. I just wanted to breathe it all in and to inspire the kids to do the same. I would return here often as well. Once, when the ocean was up and the wind gusts registered at hurricane strength, we all got into our rain gear, hooded jackets, rain pants, and rubber boots, to try to stand our ground in the face of the tempest. The waves pounded the rock beneath our feet, and the wind supported the full weight of our bodies as we let ourselves go, leaning in. But Sandy was right to be wary. Within weeks of our arrival, three tourists would be swept out to sea by rogue waves at a small beach in the Pacific Rim National Park. Two paramedics several years later would plummet to their deaths, their ambulance sliding off the winding Pacific Rim Highway from Port Alberni, tumbling 60 meters into the frigid waters of Kennedy Lake. Ben himself would tempt fate. He and a friend built a raft and shoved off close to shore, only to discover that the tide was headed out to sea, them along with it. They didn't know this was almost precisely how a former minister had lost his life back in the 1960s. Like them, he had innocently pointed his small boat seaward for a little coastal explore, never to be seen alive again. The boys managed to maneuver their craft back to shore, but Ben waited several years before he told me about it. For his part, Robbie gazed out his classroom window one day to see a cougar emerging from the bush on the far side of the playground to sun itself on a rock. He put up his hand. Is that a cougar? he asked. A conservation officer arrived in the afternoon, and the school children were assembled outside, one class at a time, along with a few parents. He wanted to give them safety tips about encountering animals in the wild, but the children wanted to talk about his gun. What kind was it? Had he ever killed anything? Could they try it? As he was answering their questions, the cougar re-emerged behind his back across the field, stretching out on the same rock as before. Should we tell them? One mother asked another. Nah, the other said, and they both laughed. They'd seen it all before. 
On my weekly pastoral runs up and down the coastal highway between Euclid and Tofino, I would always make time for a walk along the beach, even late at night. One night, the moon and stars were hidden behind a thick blanket of cloud. I parked my car in the lot by the beach. I turned the engine off, got out, and closed the door. Immediately, I was enveloped in utter darkness. There was no adjusting my eyes to it. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. The roar of the waves close by was deafening. I didn't dare take even one step away from the car, or I might have lost my way altogether. It was terrifying. When we got Rufus, a Chow Malamute cross, from one of the reserves, he and I would explore together the abandoned logging trails and deer runs that delivered us to wild stretches of shoreline. Sometimes we would step around steaming bear scat. Once, Rufus found the washed-up carcass of a seal on the beach and rolled compulsively in the stinking remains. Sometimes I would pick my way over rock faces that, with one misstep, would have sent me into a splintered crevice, or worse, into the roiling ocean itself. That was compulsive, too. Humans pay a price for living so close to the edge. But none of this was known to us yet on that first day, as Robbie and Ben and I let our imaginations flow out across the wide blue Pacific, and as Sandy held on tightly to Heather. The color rose to our cheeks, and our eyes shone as we took it all in. We could not have been further from the suburbs of southwestern Ontario, nor closer to my soul's true home. The towns themselves and the two churches I served, St. Columba's in Tofino and St. Aidan's in Euclid, also knew something about surviving on the edge. Tofino was a draw for environmentalists from around the globe. Some came as glassy-eyed vagrants. They camped on the beaches or built lean-to shelters in the woods. They smoked dope and hung around town in their dreadlocks and their wet wool sweaters, grooving on the scenery and on the vibe. Others arrived with money to invest and marketing plans to mobilize, to bring in tourists willing to pay to witness such stunning beauty, thereby protecting it from being stripped away by the industrialist harvesters. St. Columba's in Tofino, built in 1914, was a pristine example of frontier architecture, overlooking picturesque Clackwat Sound. Its red exterior was kept freshly painted, and its lawn and gardens were well-trimmed. It enjoyed a good reputation in the town, and a few benefactors always stepped forward to help out at year-end when expenses exceeded income. Euclid was thought of by its inhabitants as the working town, an intended slight to the hippies and to the yuppies building condos and buying up shoreline around Tofino, but the depletion of salmon stocks had forced the government to impose a fishing ban on some species, and fishers were left with debt for boats that no longer left the harbour. Environmental protesters had descended on the area a few years before we arrived, bringing logging to a halt and putting hundreds of locals out of work. Euclid was a dying town. The empty shops and the neglected boat slips bore painful witness to the many who were left, just trying to hang on. 
St. Aidan's, at the top of the main street in Euclid, commanded a view of the harbour, but not proudly. Like a dejected lighthouse, its whitewashed clapboard exterior was drained of life, and its grounds were broken up by exposed volcanic rock pushing up through the thin soil. There was never money to fix the bell tower, so the bell never rang, and every so often someone would throw a rock through a window, as if the church were the scapegoat for a hurting town. Emerging from the frenetic pace of my life back in Ontario, my new work was all I might have hoped for, and less. My friend Brian Leg Sandwich Murray had once said that in ministry you had to learn to pay the rent. What he meant was you had to find out what your people expected from you and make sure you did that. Once you were fulfilling what they were paying you to do, your time was more or less your own. It turned out the rent in my new ministry, like my minimum stipend, was very low indeed. Each week I was expected to lead my two congregations in worship that reflected both Anglican and United Church traditions. One week we would have a contemporary communion service from the Anglican Book of Alternative Services. The next, we would have a United Church service that centered around the sermon, giving me freedom to fill in the rest with prayers and responses, composing some of them myself. In Tofino, we had several women who played the organ and chose the hymns. In Euclid, we had only a middle-aged man with a repertoire of about ten songs, which he played rather badly. On the weeks he was away, or in order to give him a break, I would play the organ myself, though my sight-rating skills were worse than his, or I would lead a few worship songs on my guitar. My first Christmas there, I began revving up for the big Christmas Eve service, until I learned that, no, they didn't want communion just a carol service. I protested, saying Christmas was one time when both denominations would expect us to offer communion. I insisted, getting my way once again, I guess, and then suffered the daggered looks as many of their favorite carols were jettisoned for grape juice and wafers. I got it. Next year, it would be all carols, all the way. I prepared the weekly worship bulletin from my basement study in the rectory, This led me online to look for interesting fonts, a graphic world that became an addiction for me. I ended up with file folders crammed with samples, the alphabets all printed out to help me choose which one to use on which occasion. I did the rounds, visiting my new parish members in their homes, or sometimes in Tofino's 10-bed hospital. I prepared couples for marriage and families for baptism. I buried church members and townsfolk alike, and all this by about noon on Wednesday. Sandy took a job as a public health nurse with the Nuchalnuth Tribal Council. This required her to visit three local reserves, one of them by plane, where she looked in on seniors and consulted school officials about teenage pregnancy rates and met with elders and administrators about community health issues. It was difficult and often dispiriting work. It was also thankless, as a non-Native professional working with broken communities where they needed her help but didn't always welcome it. The kids all went to school three blocks from the house. On days when Sandy was away, I prepared lunch for them. It was often the highlight of my day. How many variations could I come up with of tomato soup and open-faced tuna cheese melts? I would walk them back to school afterwards 
and then returned to the empty house, wondering what to do next. My work weeks were supplemented with deanery meetings and meetings of presbytery and with the local hospice society, where I was invited onto the board. In my second year, I was elected to diocesan council, which meant a monthly overnight trip down to Victoria, and I continued to serve on the Information Resources Committee of the National Church, taking me back to Toronto several times a year. But surely, here in my parish, there must be something else I was supposed to be doing. I turned back to my short stories, the ones I had begun writing in Oakville following Alexandra's intervention. The character of Father David, young and earnest, stood in for me in my early years of my own ministry. He made outrageous mistakes in judgment. In one story, he actually fell into the grave during a burial because he'd insisted on doing it in bad weather. But he meant well, and you couldn't help but cheer him on as his ministry was formed by the parishioners he himself sought to form. Slowly, the stories were coming together as a collection under the title, How the Light Gets In. They might just be worthy of publication, I thought. Robert McLennan, the manager of the Anglican Book Center's publishing arm, thought so too. I began to test the waters by sending them out anywhere there was an audience— the mainstream church-related publications of the day all received advanced copies. Practice of Ministry in Canada, Liturgy Canada, Ministry Matters, they all took the bait and included a story or two in their pages. My friends and colleagues across the country were enlisted as advanced readers. One was Audrey Connard, a former assistant curate of mine at St. Simon's, who also happened to be a published poet— she took each of my stories to heart, as if they were my children sent to her house for lunch on days I wasn't available. She welcomed them, warmed them with soup and sandwiches, and then sent them home to me with suggestions pinned to their overcoats, making them better. By the fall of 1998, the manuscript was ready to go to the printer, but it would have to wait in line for its turn which would mean a publication date sometime well into 1999. I would have to move on to other things. Midlife causes us to do any manner of reckless things. We're looking for something we've left behind before it's too late to retrieve it. If this sounds like your story as well, please share something in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or drop me an email at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Next time, my dramatic retreat to Life on the Edge would lead to my soulful call to, as one bishop put it, the years of my greatest creativity. It was time to get focused, which meant it was time for one more move. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late to stop now. It's too late to stop now.